March 4, like you buy a car or something. I mean, you, you've got this great big car, and it's $3,000 worth of junk all hooked together with uh, little pieces of plastic and stuff. And you go, something goes wrong, right? And you write to this company, and you tell them about it, and you get this opaque letter back. Uh, Thank you very much for your interest, they will say, after you've complained that the transmission fell out, and you discovered last week that your differential was made out of silly putty. And... Uh, and they'll say, thank you very much for your interest. Uh, we always like to hear interesting letters from our customers. If you have any other comments, please write them to the Customer uh, Research and uh, the Customer uh, Affairs Department. Thank you. And it's signed. And you say, what do you mean, thank you for your interest? Well, uh, this is, uh, have you wondered why this is so? Well, uh, well I'm going to propose Shepard's proposition. And that is that most companies are no longer in the business of creating a product, they are in the office business. I am going to repeat for the benefit for those of you who might have missed it, a, really a cosmic idea, uh, and it is. You know, most ideas that really truly get to the core of, thing, of things sound on the surface extremely simple. D is equal to MC squared. Well, that's nothing. As a, uh, that's, a, that's a ridiculously easy, even I... Having the trouble I had in algebra can understand is e, e equals equal to E equals MC squared. That's an easy one, you know. Now, that took Albert Einstein uh, his entire life to come up with that. And when he laid it on to awaiting humanity, it seemed so simple. Everyone said, what the hell? Why did we see this before? And the next thing you know, atomic bombs are going off. So you see, the most difficult concepts seem at the surface to be the easiest. 
Why do they why do they applaud Newton so much? Well, Newton was the first guy that discovered when an apple falls, it falls because something pulls it down. I mean, up to that point, they said, well, the damn apples just fall, you know, nobody. <laughs> That's right. He said, there's, a, there's something that pulls it down. I caught up the force of gravity. At that point, everyone said, oh, for God's sakes, of course. I've thought that for years. You just put it into words. Well, that's the difference between Newton and you. Newton put it into words, and you just go around to the chock full of nuts and pick your teeth and think great thoughts and do not a damn thing about it. However, Lee's proposition solves so much of it. And I'm just going to repeat it for the benefit of those of you who might have missed it because we've got a great deal of, uh, a tremendous amount of mail on it. How many times have you watched a television show? Especially a horror show. And, uh, you know, there's the great monsters hiding in the wall with the claws that come out. You know, it's got these two ping-pong balls for eyes. And they hear these mysterious sounds down in the cellar. And for some reason, known only to himself, the hero leaves the girl alone and goes out searching for something with a candle. And you say to yourself, why the hell is he going? That thing's going to get her now. What is it? You wonder why he did it, right? Nobody would do that in real life. There's where Lee Brown's proposition ended. Now, take Adam 12. You see these two clouds driving around. You know these two clutches driving a car around. And uh, they're supposed to be, uh, they get a call. They're going to break up a, a robbery, right? So it's a robbery now in process at 4th and La Brea, right? Well, what do they do? Turn on the siren. Therefore, letting the guys that are doing the robbery know that they're coming, and they let them know for blocks in advance, why did he do this? Would anyone with his right mind working do this? Yes, under one set of circumstances. And this is where Lee Brown's proposition comes in. Lee Brown's proposition reads this way. Because it is a movie. Now wait, that sounds simple. No, it is not. In other words, all of our artworks have lives of their own that have nothing to do with with uh, existence and, and rational behavior because it is a film. That's why she didn't call the police when that big, gray, slimy monster was crawling around on the outside with the ping-pong balls for the eyes because it is a movie. Simple enough. Now, that fits other things, too. We just received a letter from one of our, uh, one of our fellow victims out there. says, I, I've been shocked, in fact, rocked right down to the ground by Lee Brown's proposition. I've applied it to various things. This could change criticism in a great deal. You, this is an interesting uh, thing to remember. Because it is blank. A film, a TV show, a play, especially a play. Uh, the, the plays have nothing to do with life. Uh, and that goes all the way back to Shakespeare. So this guy wrote, and he says, Shepard, you've answered a question. He says, I've had this, this terrible thing. He says, I work in this office, and for years there's been something bugging me. Every time I ask a question of this guy who is my immediate superior, uh, he mumbles and walks away. I ask him a direct question, when are we going to decide about the vacation schedule? He turns and mutters and walks away. This has bugged me for years. I'll ask him a direct question. Shall I order more number two Ticonderoga pencils? And he mutters and walks away. He says, you've answered the question. I suddenly see it because he is a boss. Mind does not work in normal ways. Uh, <laughs> this stuff is simple. It's a, it's a, it's a, there's, there's a great profundity there. E is equal to MC squared. And I'm just, uh, yes, indeed, Walt. 
And I am still worried very strongly about the, about the impact of the physiological upon our daily life. I mean, how many guys... Uh, uh, it would be interesting to write the physiological history of history. We've done the psychological history, you know. Freud was to write history. Uh, here, for example, here, what, what do you think was going on with this guy? Here's a, a note from Montgomery, New York. Larry McBride ran out of gas in the middle of the night, but he was in luck. A friend came by and offered to drive him to a service station. Eight miles and three villages later, McBride found one open, but the attendant would only give him one, I repeat, one gallon of gas. When he got back to his car, a 1952 Chevrolet, that's enough to make a guy mad right there if you know the car, a 1952 Chevrolet, he had no funnel to pour the gas into the tank. That really bucked him. He struggled around for about 20 minutes trying to get the gas in the tank, and it finally got to him. And with 15 persons watching from a nearby tavern and applauding, I might add, McBride poured the gas all over the car, set it on fire, and walked off into the darkness. <laughs> now, there's a guy that, uh, you know, he, he, he stepped right out and did it, man. Oh, yeah, that was funny. This is WOR New York. And uh, speaking of uh, funny things, here are some commercials. You ever been to Isla Morada? Isla Morada. Well, I got a story about Isla Morada. You don't know where Isla Morada is? Well, have you ever been down to the Keys? Well, if you've never been to the Keys, you are in for a very interesting surprise. You know where the Keys are. If you can imagine Florida. You look at Florida hanging down there at the bottom of a Texas weather map on the TV every night. And there's a little bunch of dots that go stringing out into the ocean there. Those are called the Keys. And one of them is Isla Morada. It's about, uh, oh, I would say, hmm, just guessing offhand, I'd say about 20 miles further south down the Keys from Key Largo. You remember Key Largo? Every time I think of Key Largo, I think of that movie. Remember the movie Key Largo? Who was in it? You know who, who was in Key Largo? My right. But who was the bad guy in it? Bogart was not the bad guy in that. <laughs> you, you never saw the movie? Oh, that's a great classic. That's, that's a great, uh, great classic. Uh, they were in this house in the hurricane in Key Largo. Well, anyway, uh, there's something down there. There's something in the, in the air down there. Any of you have ever driven down in Florida uh, much at all? I, I don't think we've ever talked much about Florida, but most people, when they think of Florida, they always think of Miami Beach going down and watching uh, somebody in the nightclub, and that's one little tiny piece of Florida. But uh, the Keys are something else. And uh, here's Isla Morada, Key. This is a news note. 3,000 motorists were stranded in the Florida Keys by a truck wreck on the Overseas Highway Bridge. Now, that's a, a highway. You know, the highway goes all the way down to Key West. You can drive out of Miami, which is a big city, and drive south on US-1. And as you drive south, you, you just start going over water. This is literally what happens. The next thing you know, you're in Key Largo. You just keep driving, and it's about 175, 180 miles over water. Uh, it's a fantastic drive. You go from key to key until finally you reach the end, which is down in Key West. That's the last key, the southernmost part of the United States. But uh, this is a, a road. You've seen it in TV commercials a lot. Well, there was a wreck on the highway there 
here a couple of days ago. Uh, a truck flipped over, and there were 3,000 cars stranded just sitting there in the sun. Now, remember, this is Florida. This is not the Long Island Expressway. Now, there's a certain nuttiness in Florida, as is the case in all tropical uh, places. And they're sitting there in the sun, 3,000 cars. That's a lot of cars in a line. When all of a sudden, D.D. Barnardo, D.D. Barnardo, Bernardo, D.D. Bernardo, uh, who's a chick, obviously, fantastic-looking girl, got out and climbed up to the top of her pickup truck, she had a little pickup truck, turned up the music on the pickup truck, and started to do this uh, really graphic, topless dance. Well, everybody's cheering, see? And so time went on. Dee Dee turned up the radio on the, on the camper, and uh, she was uh, wearing only uh, her cut-off jeans and a very large smile, and everyone was cheering. After that, the driver of an ice cream truck walked down the line of cars and began to sell fudgies and uh, creamsicles and all that sort of stuff. And uh, then a guy, <laughs> there was a guy at a camper and, a, and, a, and another one with a chauffeur-driven limousine. Both of them had bars in their things, and they started to pass out drinks. Well, the party was getting going. Next thing you know, people were climbing out of their cars and going down the side of the viaduct. That's a viaduct, you know. And they're swimming in the water. In the beaches, beach parties broke out all up and down the long line of cars. And a guy suddenly arrived, who incidentally was already in the crowd. It seems that there was a bait truck in the crowd. And he started to hand out shrimp and mullet to anyone who had a fishing rod because the damn stuff was getting hot in the sun anyway. So he starts to hand out the bait. So the next thing you know, all these people are fishing off the bridge and dancing and singing, drinking a beer, down in the water. And then uh, within five minutes, guys arrived with beer trucks and started to sell beer. Well, this took seven hours. And for seven hours, the people were having this fantastic time. By that time, Dee Dee Bernardo had a fantastic sunburn. Uh, there were hundreds of people had tremendous hangovers. Uh, some guys were taken back to Miami where they were given oxygen and resuscitated. Several people who took advantage of the bait uh, man had coolers full of fish. And everyone was a little bit bugged when the uh, traffic thing got straightened out. They started to drive. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it just broke out. Now, I was in Isla Morado. I'll tell you something about Isla Morado. This is a story that, that I've, never, I've never, I know I've never told this on the air, but Two things, uh, many things have actually happened to me on driving in, uh, in Florida, because this is a very special part of the world. Nothing to do with any other part of America. And uh, life is extremely exotic down there. For example, here's an example of the kind of thing you run into. One day I'm driving across uh, Alligator Alley. Now, Alligator Alley is a road that cuts right directly through the Everglades. This is an absolutely trackless waste. A uh, fantastic place down there. I mean, because you know what the Everglades are. But you don't really appreciate the Everglades until you see them. Uh, there's nothing like them. Uh, they're unique. It's a giant... Did you know the Everglades really is a giant wide river that flows south out of Lake Okeechobee, which is this tremendous lake in the central part of Florida, a big, flat, shallow lake. And the, the water flows south in a great vast stream slowly, moves south, and it's, it's tremendously wide, and of course it's uh, filled with um, just an endless uh, mangrove swamp, endless uh, weeds and cranes and 
and uh, alligators, and it's tremendous down there. So, and absolutely lonely, dead silence. So one day, I'm driving across Alligator Alley. Now, that's, that's, a lot of people get nervous driving across this, and there's a reason. There's no gas. No. There's no place to get tire air or anything else on this road. It, it, it's, uh, it's about, I think, uh, let me think here now, it's about 75 miles directly across. Goes from Fort Lauderdale on the uh, east side, uh, directly over to Naples, Florida, on the west coast. But all the way through the Everglades, this road cuts straight as a die, and it's hot. And the, you can see on either side of you, nothing but the endless glades. But anyway, on this night, this day, I'm driving along the, the glades, uh, the alligator alley there, and uh, I'm all alone, driving along. When all of a sudden, my car started to heat up, the car that I was using, halfway across. And it's really hot. And it's really, it's up, up, up by the danger sign, see? So I said, I better let this darn thing cool off, and I better get some water in this thing. Well, there's water in the glades everywhere, see? So I just pulled off. There was a little exit, uh, emergency pull-off. No, no exit, but an emergency pull-off where you can pull off and have these little concrete tables and nothing but gravel there and uh, the, the glade water. So I pulled off. And I was the only car there. And I pulled into this, this little gravel spot, and I walked down to the bank of the Everglades, and I had a, uh, I found a bottle laying around there somewhere, a Coke bottle or something, and I scooped up some water. And I'm coming back, pouring, and by the way, when I walked down there, all these fish, uh, this is a fresh water, of course, all these fish were, were floating near the shore, and as I walked down, absolutely silent, you could see them all moving in a big school away from me. And there were cranes and herons standing. And I, I scooped up the water, came back, and put it in the uh, radiator. And I was waiting for the car to cool off. When all of a sudden, I see coming over the horizon, I see a, a, a battered white Buick. And it's really battered, covered with, uh, covered with uh, this kind of yellow clay. And he's coming over the horizon, just booming along. And he, it looks like he's trailing a, a trailer of some kind. And he pulls along right opposite the cutoff, and he turns in, pulls down way at the other end, and I'm looking down at him. He's got this, he's got this uh, trailer. It isn't actually a trailer. It's a couple of wheels is what it looked like on the back of his car with some long, flat things, strange-looking stuff on the back there. And I, I wandered, uh, kind of wandered over towards this guy. We're the only guy. That's nothing but silence there. And I wandered over towards him, and he had gotten out, and was checking this trailer. I walked over towards him, and at first I thought he was towing a glider. You ever seen gliders that people tow at the back of their cars? You ever seen this? Because it looked like a folded-up glider at first. And I walked over to the thing, and I said, Hey, said, uh, I immediately, as soon as I got up to it, I, I saw it was not a glider, but it had something to do with aircraft. And, uh, yeah, I could see what it was. It looked like two wings he had, two tremendous wings. But they weren't wide enough for wings, but they were definitely aircraft equipment. This tall, skinny, uh, bronze, red-faced guy who obviously was a, a Florida Glades type, wearing chino pants, kind of mean look in the eye. I walked over and I said, uh, what what he got there? I said, I, uh, I I thought you had a glider there first. I had to put him on his ease. I said right away. I said, I'm a, I'm a pilot. It's okay. So I know something about it. And he said, Oh, you're a pilot. And I said, Yeah. 
He said, I got a, uh, I got a pair of ailerons here. I said, ailerons? What, what the... You know what ailerons are, are don't you? Well, ailerons are the, are the big flap-like things that you see on airplane wings. When you're riding in an airplane and these things come down, <coughs> there are two things on the wings. There's the flaps and the spoilers and the aileron. The aileron are what make the, give the airplane uh, uh, its maneuverability. So anyway, he says, they've got a pair of ailerons. Now, you won't see this kind of stuff on 6th Avenue in New York. I says, you got to pay a railroad. I says, what in the hell is that from? That's an awful big airplane. He says, yeah. He said, I got an old C-47. That's a DC-3. You know what a DC-3 is. And he says, I, I found, uh, there was a guy I heard that was uh, uh, junking a DC-3 or C-47 out here someplace in the Glades, and I I uh, heard he had some ailerons to sell, and I wanted to come in and pick up a couple of pairs of spare ailerons. I said, you got a C-47? He said, yeah, I sure have. I said, what do you do with it? When do you hear what he does with it? <laughs> That's what threw me. I says, uh, you got a C-47? He says, yeah, I sure do. He said, uh, he said I got the, you notice the back of the trailer there. He says, I got a spare engine, too, I'm towing in. I said, yeah, I see it back there. And I was looking at the engine. It's a, a, an engine for a C-47 is a lot of hardware, by the way. And uh, he says, uh, yep, he says, I... He said, I got a C old, old uh, C-47, an old uh, uh, Army surplus uh, 47, he said, I bought here a couple of years ago. He said, I gutted it and rebuilt it. I said, how'd you rebuild it? He said, I built it into a camper. The guy's got a camper, see? I said, you got a camper that's a C-47? He said, yep. He said, I got it all built up nice and good. He said, I go out. He says, I, I fly it up once in a while up to Canada, and I hunt, hunt wolves and stuff. I said, you do? And he said, yep. And away he went. So this is Florida. Now, talking about Isla Morada, I had a day, one of the unforgettable days I've ever had in my life in Isla Morada, which is what I was reading about where the traffic jam happened. Now, you can't get off that highway. you got to remember, the reason this thing broke out is that it's a long, narrow concrete ribbon that goes south of Miami, and it goes from key to key. And once you're on it, you're on it. You, you, you just don't get off. There's no way to get, get around. There's no place to go it's the uh, it's the gulf down there it's uh, the beginning of the caribbean <laughs> it's it's ocean so uh, nevertheless one day uh, a friend of mine called and uh, you know most of the time in your life things don't really work you had have, you know have you uh, no I'm, I'm talking about uh, you go to a ball game we'll say for the first time you go to a ball game and uh, somebody hits a, a fly ball right in your hands how often does that happen very rarely. You go out to a, uh, a, let's say you go to Aqueduct, the first time you go to the racetrack. You put $2 on a horse, and he comes in at 117 to 1. Uh, that doesn't happen often, does it? No way. Okay? Well, even more rare is what happened to me. I, one of the great rarities of my time happened right down there in Isla Morada. A friend of mine called... And I was down in Miami, uh, down there doing some stuff. I, in fact, in fact, I was down there on a promotional tour for my last book. And uh, he knew I was down there. So he lives up in, in central Florida. And one day in the hotel room, I got this call. And I picked up the phone. I said, yeah, Dick, what's up? He said, did you ever, uh, he says, uh, do you ever fish for tarpon? I said, uh, no, I haven't. I never did. Now, you've heard of tarpon. Well, I'd heard of tarpon all my life, and I'm a fisherman, too. Remember this. 
But the reality is very, very different from the concept. You can judge nothing by films, movies, books, plays. The real reality transcends all of that. So Dick says, hey, would you like to go uh, fishing for tarpon? I said, sure. He says, well, I'm on my way down to the Tarpon Derby. Did you know that there's an international event that is held every year that is extremely technical? And only the best fishermen in the world come to this thing. And it's, it's, uh, it's at Isla Morada, which is the great tarpon fishing ground in the Western world. And he says, I'm in the Tarpon Derby. This guy, by the way, is a famous skeet shooter, too, an ex-U.S. champion. So he says, listen, he says, I'm driving through Miami. He said, I'll pick you up. And he said, uh, I'm going to be tuning up for the Derby. He says, now the Derby begins tomorrow. And he said, I've already got my boat down there. He says, the guy that I've been working with for the past 15 years is down there. We're all set. He said, you, you can go along with it. So I said, sure, I'd love to. I never miss an, you know, a chance for an experience like this. So he picked me up. And we began to drive. We drove south through Miami and down to Key Largo and continued on south. And as you go, you know, first there's all kinds of little hot dog stands and Mr. Donut stands and stuff. And then eventually it begins to slowly thin out. And the next thing you know, you see the gulf on either side here, this great flat expanse of green, blue, yellow, magnificent water. And we hit town after town, and finally we're at Isla Morada. Have you ever heard of Isla Morada? Okay. Isla Morada to a fisherman is like mentioning uh, the Vatican to a Catholic. I mean, it is. It is. It, it, it's where it is. So I had never never done this before, and and uh, I didn't realize what I was getting into. So he said, uh, look, he said, uh, well, uh, I'll get you some uh, equipment here. He said, but you know, this is very technical fishing. And he said, all of the, the, the tournament fishing, the tournament gear that we use, everything is very carefully weighed and measured. They use special leaders. They use a special uh, kind of uh, tarpon lure. They don't use any live bait. Everything is, is, is measured and weighed so that when they go out and the referees go out with them, it's under absolutely controlled conditions. So, you know, I'm, I'm gee, yeah, you know, no kidding. And he says, okay, he says, here's your rod now. He says, you've got the, your tournament equipment, and uh, I'm going to give you this, uh, this tournament lure. Now, the lure looks like a little, actually like a little lozenge. Uh, in this case, it was painted red. A little lozenge of metal. It's about, oh, an inch and a half, maybe an inch and a quarter long, about a quarter inch thick, and about an inch wide with a single hook, one hook. And it has a little feather on the end of it, red or sometimes yellow. But it's a very carefully weighed piece of gear. It has to be exactly the same as all the other guys have got. So uh, we got in the boat. Now, the boat is a flat boat, uh, an inboard boat, a flat uh, fiberglass boat, very rugged boat. And we tore off out past the mangrove swamps with this guy who had never been out of the, of the Keys. Forty years he'd been living in the Keys. Big uh, bronze-looking laconic guy with a straw hat lives in a houseboat. Mind you, Travis McGee. So out we went into the Gulf, and we're going down through these these mangroves, and and off in the distance we see occasional boat off there on, on the on the horizon. So we finally got out to where we were going to fish. Now he drops a little anchor, and we lay in water that was no more than maybe three or four feet deep. 
you can see the bottom all around it. There's coral and there's there's little weeds and starfish and stuff right on the bottom. The water is absolutely crystal clear. You can see you can see every grain of sand on the bottom of this thing. We're, we're sitting in there. I says, well, "What do you do?" And he they were paying absolutely no attention to me because these two guys were training and were warming up, were working on their tackle for the big day tomorrow. They, I was just sort of a passenger. They gave me this rod and so. I felt kind of foolish. Now he says, "Well, you go up in the bow." He says, "Don't don't get in our way." Uh, and I'll tell you what you do. He says, "You see the tarpon. You don't just fish for the tarpon. You don't just cast in general. You see a tarpon. If you see a tarpon, well, you wait until he's just opposite the boat. If he's moving parallel to the boat or across the front, at that point, he said, you have to drop your lure, no more than eight inches." in front of his nose, right directly in front of him. He will hit your lure, theoretically, out of anger, not because he's hungry, but because something is endangering him. He sees this thing, and bam, he hits it. See? Now, he says, that's important. If you, if you drop it too far away, they have very poor eyesight. He won't see it. If you drop it too far behind, you'll just swim away from the danger. You have to drop right in front of his nose. He says, there's only one problem. I said, what is that? He says, the tarpon moves through the water about 30 miles an hour when he's swimming. He says, this is not, he doesn't just lay out there. I said, oh, well, all day I watched for tarpon. And once a shark moved past us. Once a, a, a ray just floated quietly under the boat and drifted out. He says, get your lines in quick. And a, and a rain began to fall. A cold wind blew. And then the sun came out again. And we moved to another place, and another place. And then it rained again, and then there was another splash of sunshine. And off in the distance, I saw a couple of other boats drifting around doing the same thing, way off. Well, finally, it, it all day had gone by. Nothing had happened. It is now about 5 o'clock. It's just starting to get the edge of dusk. And the guy says, listen, he says, I'll tell you, we've got one more thing. Let's try the... Let's try the weed bed, he said, uh, down by uh, down by Big Mangrove. And he said, we put in about 10 minutes down there. And he says, then we'll go in and just give it a try. So we drifted on down to this next place. And I am up on the bow of the boat. This is when the, the wildest thing that ever happened to me as a sportsman ever happened. And I, I have nothing on except a pair of shorts, a T-shirt. That's it. Not even shoes. All of a sudden, I see what looked like a shadow. Just drifting about, oh, 75, 80 feet away. Just a shadow. Moving across the water. It looked like the sun. But for the first time in my life, I did exactly the right thing. Now, how often, when the great moment arises, do you miss the foul ball in the stands when you brought your glove? Well, I shot a cast out. It was fantastic. That thing hit the water about seven inches ahead of that thing's nose. It just went a little splat. And it was an instant, just a brief instant, when the when the bait hit, sent up a little shower of water, and boom, he hit. And a, the fish left the water, and in a great leaping, twisting, climbing turn, he landed flat on his side, and he took off. Well, I, it was a fantastic moment. He took off. He must have gone about, I would say, it looked like a half mile. I doubt whether it was that far, but he must have gone at least three, about a quarter of a mile. He just took off. 
And, and, and Dick and the guide leaped up. What the hell? You know, there it is. I've got a fish. In fact, he took off so hard that this thing cut through the water and set up a spray. My, my, my uh, monofilament line was cutting the water. And finally, he, he stopped a quarter of a mile out. At that point, Dick says, don't do anything. Don't touch it. And I waited. And he leaped again. This tremendous tarpon took off again. Flipped over in the air twice. And that was the beginning. I set the hook. And for one hour and 20 minutes, with this light tackle, I fought this thing. You have no concept of what it's like to be hooked to the back end of 120 pounds of tarpon. It is an incredible experience. And at one point, I figured I'm, gonna, I'm not going to live. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to survive this. My stomach hurt, my back hurt, my head hurt. I'm standing on the bow of the boat. I don't have any of these uh, these uh, harnesses or anything else on me. And I've got this thing stuck in my shorts, trying to fight it, pump it. And finally, after one hour and maybe 15, 20 minutes, I landed this giant tarpon. Well, now, when we came in, he was about five feet, six, seven inches long. Tremendous fish. When we came in, Dick looked at me and he says, you know... Some guys have been coming down here for 15 years and have never landed a tarpon. He says, when you land a tarpon, not only a tarpon, you land one over 100 pounds, and your first cast, your first tarpon, you say. Well, I've quit now. <laughs> I quit when I was ahead. And, and whenever I think of the, of, of the Isle of Morada, the Key Largo world down there, that's a whole separate world. And if you ever get a chance, man, you should drive south of Miami, head on down towards Key Largo, Key, Key West, make it, make it all the way down to the end. That's a whole different world. This is Hemingway world, you know. In fact, Hemingway made Key Largo famous until Truman came to think you got it bad, right? Huh? Okay, listen to this one. This is WOR New York. 